You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, I'm not only intrigued, but I'm delighted to have not only a great friend of mine, but also a wonderful mentor, Linda Gregorio, the head of property and the built environment for Beckon Capital. But before we begin, I just wanted to talk about how we first met Linda. Welcome. Thanks so much, Elizabeth, and thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Look, we met at a dinner that one of my favourite magazines, Country Style, and I think it was celebrating 10 years. 30 years. How many years? 30, not 10. Wow. (laughs) I just felt like 10 made me seem younger. And we were on this table and I remember that we struck up a conversation straight away and we were really fortunate to be on a table with two young ladies that you introduced me to that were in the running for, I think it was a Young Designer of the Year. That's right, yeah. It was actually two girls from Willie Weston Mm. and two Melbourne girls and they had reinvented, if you like, the way to use Aboriginal motifs and Aboriginal art and had put it on soft furnishings and it also put it on uh, wallpaper. And I actually introduced them to Victoria Carey, the editor of Country Style at the time. And I said, these girls are doing something different, it's innovative and you should include them in what you're doing. And then funnily enough, that led to an award that they received. It was a national award and at that same night met you. Just so our listeners are aware, we then went on to invite Willie Weston and Linda to, I think it was the 2019 Think Brick Awards. And one of the presenters that day, Yvonne Weldon, and she's just an amazing woman as well she actually flew down to do the welcome to country for me and she used this phrase down to earth and that was where I got the inspiration to not only use that for our awards last year but we also used this beautiful rainbow artwork that Willie Weston had introduced to us and we really formed this collaboration and I'm so proud of it and that's really all centered because of you. Oh, well, thank you. And it looks fantastic. And I see that that's actually funny, all those little connections and then what happens sort of down the track. So it's fantastic that you've incorporated into your whole branding and marketing. Oh, it's beautiful. And that artwork is Rainbows by April Jones. But Linda, look, you've had just an amazing experience of life. And if I was to read out all the different things you've done, we wouldn't even get to the questions. But you've sort of been, I think, involved in some significant urban design. We'll talk about a few of those projects. But then you've had this eclectic input into art and curating and and retail space and all of these different things. So I'm excited that you're here. And I would like to start off, if we can, just by a little bit of your upbringing and how that kind of has informed where you've gone? Well, I grew up in Brighton in Melbourne and funnily enough, my family had been there since the 1850s. So I have an Australian Anglo-Celtic mother (laughs) and my father's Cypriot. So Brighton in Melbourne and you actually also have to say it in a particular way, it's Brighton. It's Brighton. Yeah. And (laughs) it's, you'd almost say the super wasp suburb of Melbourne. And 
there's a funny thing that happens in Brighton. You don't leave. Most people don't leave. It's quite insular. It's by the the bay uh, and many people would know it with the little bathing boxes that have been there, you know, since the sort of 1860s, 1870s. So it's, I suppose, an upper middle class suburb in Melbourne. So I grew up in Brighton and I've always been exposed to real estate, to architecture. We grew up in a big old sort of rambling house, uh, Victorian house. And across the road from me was the architect Alan Huff. And this was in the early 70s and I used to hang out with his kids and play with he had four daughters and we used to it was almost like a delight to go to the Huff's house because it was the antithesis of my house which was you know from the 1880s and this was new and it had clinker brick and more specifically it had Daniel Robertson brick and Alan Huff was one of the first people that had incorporated the whole notion of landscape and architecture and interiors. It was all about natural, the natural environment and it was about celebrating what was Australian. And so this was in suburban Brighton, if you like, and that was one of the first times that I'd actually been exposed to that sort of thing. You know, being a little kid and being going in and out of friends' houses and then there was, at the same time, there was a a brick firm, and I'm not doing this on purpose, but it's, there was a brick firm called Daniel Robertson, very well-known mm. Australian uh, brick company, and they were producing bricks that were almost like sandstock, you know, Hawthorne bricks, and they were a really big thing in the 70s, sort of late 60s, early 70s, and one of our neighbours had bought these I think they're probably the most beautiful tiles I've ever seen and they had this sort of almost aquamarine glaze that Daniel Robertson had produced. And at the time they would have been the equivalent of, say, $700 a tile nowadays. But anyway, so those sort of things had stuck in my mind. The thing that I was particularly interested in, my mother was obsessed with merchant builder houses, I think was a really interesting case study. I don't know if your listeners would know much about merchant builders. I think for everyone, let's just remind us what okay. that is. <laughs> so it was a it was actually a, a building company that was started by David Yenkin and a couple of his cohorts. And it was started in the late 60s. And what it was, was about bringing quality, affordable housing into the into the Australian suburbs again, celebrating about what was Australian, but in particular using well-known architects. And so, it was looking at the the architecture, the interiors, the way that they branded, the, the way they did the marketing, having well-known photographers, say like John Gollings, mm. Graham Gunn was one of the the architects, and also Ella Stones, who was. Uh, integral in producing the landscape. Again, very similar to what I was saying with Alan Huff, which was using railway sleepers, indigenous planting, that kind of thing. So again, it was taking sort of, I mean, my mother was literally obsessed. We would go out to, you know, these display homes and and look at these places. And then there was one in Yule Street in Brighton that was not far from us. And they did this thing called a cluster development and it was very innovative. It was nothing like that had been done in Australia before and I think there was a Cluster Titles Act that was brought in in 1974. So being exposed to 
a lot of that sort of architecture, if you like, was which was very different from, you know, where I had grown up. And in 1969, my family bought a property in a place called Kangaroo Ground, or it was actually Bendov Islands, which is right on the Yarra. It's about 30 kilometres north of Melbourne. And along with the well-known ceramicist Neil Douglas, they formulated the first sort of urban conservation area in Australia. It's now an environmental living zone. And part of the the premise behind it was that, and again, it was part of community activation where the Victorian government was going to flood um, the area for a dam. And they decided that this area should be conserved almost like a national park and that there were only to be Indigenous trees. There were only to be predominantly mud brick houses or houses that were made from recycled materials. And we had a house on the property that everything was recycled and that was, you know, done in 1970, 1971, that there were no cats, there were no fences. And generally there was sort of, it was basically, I think, acreage. So we had about 10 acres that went down to the Yarra River. And so, again, in very much involved in that our whole family was and that's yeah it's now full-on sort of environmental living zone and then there was another project that and we still have this property in Swallow Street in Port Melbourne and it was a whole series of Victorian houses some were smaller workers cottages we have a sort of large double-fronted Victorian house and it's perpendicular to Port Phillip Bay and around it was disused railway land holdings and Mervac got a hold of it and wanted to demolish the street and they Swallow Street Swallow Street in yep. Port Melbourne and Swallow Street now still exists it's the only street of Victorian and Wardian houses surrounded by Mervac development so again I think through all those, all that sort of different exposure, I used to go to auctions with my father all the time. I mean, that that was sort of grew up with it. So, you know? Linda, just if I can take you back on two things, would you sort of say that the merchant builder houses were a sophisticated, maybe first incarnation of project sort of built homes? Oh, they were. They were yep. incredibly sophisticated. Yeah, Petted and Savitt was in Sydney. Okay. But no, that, that was the precursor to really good quality, affordable, well-designed project homes Mm. and then done in a very, very different way. I mean, I have to say to you, I look at a lot of project home now and I think they're incredibly mediocre. This was using the best of Australian architecture at the time, the best landscape architects, the best interior designers. And if you look at, you know, different companies like Tract in Melbourne, you know, that, that came out of Merchant Builder, yeah. And the other thing that you mentioned, which I just wanted to understand how it felt for you, you mentioned that Brighton was very WASP yeah. and you're not. Was no. that Did that impact your experience growing up? Well, I think I was lucky because I transcended two completely different cultures <laughs> and I think I had the emotional intelligence to actually take the best of both worlds. But interestingly enough, you didn't fit with the Australian no. or, you know, straight Anglo-Celtic culture and certainly didn't fit in with the sort of the Greek or the Cypriot migrant culture that came post-war into Melbourne. So 
we tended to mix with kids that were we were considered to be half casts mm. and you're in no man's land so look it definitely had an impact it it did later on. I've got an interesting little anecdote to tell you with what happened during the Olympics. But I can't say it was negative at all. I think it was something positive. And I think with things like that, you always try and take the the best out of your particular situation. It's such an interesting... I've been born here in Australia, so I do find the perspective really interesting, you know, that, that, that we've had Camilla Block on, on our podcast and she was saying like you never feel sometimes that you'll ever fit in yeah. and I think it's a it, I've never it never occurred to me so I'm curious about that I but don't think you do fit I, and I think you're you're a bit of a misfit and an odd bod and I think it's interesting looking at, you know I've lived in Sydney since 1994 and most of my close friends happen to be from Melbourne and they're also half and there weren't that many of us. Now it's normal. Yes. You know, there are interracial marriages, mixed marriages. But growing up in the late 60s and the 70s, definitely not. Mm. And I can remember my, my sister has, you know, whitey blonde hair and blue eyes and looks very Anglo-Celtic. And she used to get called the adopted wog. <laughs> you know, and so it was sort of, you just sort of used to laugh. I think one of the things that you made sure... Well, I made sure that, you know, I was good at sport. I was good academically. I was good in pretty much everything that I I tried to be good at everything that I put my hand to because there was no recourse then. Yes. Mm. So if we take that little bit there that you're talking about, about school mm. and, and then what you went on to study, mm. can you explain what that was like for you? I was obsessed by cities and the way that they work and the the sociology behind them and how people work and function and interact and recreate in cities. And I suppose always being very observant. There's this really interesting thing in urban design called mental mapping and it's sort of moving around a particular area. You might, within your say urban experience you might constantly go to three or four places but within that those three or four places actually stay in your mind's eye and you're looking at landmarks or you might be looking at trees or that type of thing that actually helps you map and navigate the urban environment. When I was a kid I used to be really observant and looking at sorts of things that you know whether it was buildings or little fountains in gardens or whatever it was. So I was particularly interested in the city. So I ended up at Monash and I did, you know, I'd call myself a geographer. In particular, I was really interested in the spatial organisation of cities. With mental mapping, is that something that as a, a person living in a city that I am subconsciously aware of or is that trying to be influenced on me by the planning of the city? I think it's both. Mm. I think as a, a person, it's a very subconscious thing. Mm. But I think as a professional working in that area, it is a very conscious thing and it is the whole notion about how good design adds value. And it adds value from a social, cultural perspective and environmental perspective. So I think in this country we've become far more sophisticated in how we actually, in parts of the city anyway, uh, not all, but the way that we actually design and the end product and so it has a better end user experience. So then what's your favourite mental mapped city in Australia? 
It's probably what I, my journey every day. Yes. You know, I would say travel from Alexandria to Redfern to Bondi to Windsor on the Hawkesbury and that's my almost like my trade area in a funny way, my trade route, but in there's a whole series of, in particular I, I have a weekender out at Windsor on the Hawkesbury and mentally I know as I drive along that there are particular landmarks or houses or trees that helps me sort of know the closer I am to the, my destination. So it's very much a visual thing as well. Mm. It's an aesthetic thing, yeah. So you're at Monash mm. and then, then where do you end up? Funnily enough, after university, I went and worked as a real estate agent and, and everybody said to me I was nuts. I always knew I wanted to be a property developer. And one of the reasons why I worked as a real estate agent, I was very specific. I chose an area in uh, inner city Melbourne and I worked for a company called Noel Jones. I don't know if they exist anymore, but they were very big sort of in the 80s. And one of the reasons why I chose them is because I was going to be exposed to residential, industrial and commercial. And I wanted to learn at a, you know, sort of almost like first-hand experience what it was like to be involved in the real estate market, but in particular, it taught me how to negotiate. And that was a really deliberate strategy by yourself. very deliberate. Mm-hmm. People, you know, I'm a reader, sort of quite intellectual at one level and couldn't understand why I'd want to be a salesperson, but it was very deliberate. And it was one of the best things I've ever done because – you know, I work in the property industry, I work in real estate and you're negotiating uh, all the time, whether it's with councils, whether it's with prospective purchases, whether, you know, it could even be other consultants, but it's a constant negotiation. What's your top recommendation for good negotiation? Actually being fair and thinking about where the other person is coming from as well. So again, it gets back to emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. and thinking about, I think when you have a good outcome is when you've both got the same objectives. And at the end of the day, look, it's about money. You can be sometimes too clever and outsmart yourself, but put yourself in the other person's shoe and also be prepared to walk away. I think Mm -hmm. with real estate, it's really important. You never get emotional about it. Uh, that's always a disaster. Um, <laughs> you just walk. You go, okay, because there's all. There'll always be another one. That's I always true. had that attitude. You know, yep. it doesn't matter. It's there's always something else, and quite often the something else is often better. better. Yeah. So, how long did you stay in real estate in that capacity? Oh, I did it for about a year and a half. Oh wow! And then I went off and worked. So I was very conscious. I thought to myself, I have to serve an apprenticeship. I have to understand how the system works so I went and worked as a planner an urban planner and that was about strategic planning at a company in Melbourne called Wilson Sayer Core and they were the leading planning firm in Melbourne at the time. What do you think is the biggest misconception about urban planning? I'll tell you what I think it needs I think we need to go way beyond in universities I mean I've taught a master's at several tertiary or universities in Australia and and I look at it all the time. I think planners have a very big responsibility mm. and their responsibility is not only regulatory, it's an aesthetic, it's an environmental, it's a cultural, it's a social one. And I think the way that we teach 
urbanism or planning here, it's too narrow and it needs to be more multidisciplinary. It needs it needs people to have a design understanding. It needs an aesthetic and an architectural understanding. If it was up to me, I would actually have students doing something like geography yep. and urban design and then they could sort of then specialise in planning. To me it's almost an overwhelming topic, yeah. you know, like when you say it. Yeah. And and then working in the industry like we do, there's just so many different areas that people have different responsibility for and I think sort of congealing that all together is well, a simple way of looking at it is that there's statutory planning, so the, the legal side of mm-hmm. planning. You know, can I build two metres from the fence? What height can I go to? And then there's strategic planning, which is big picture, macro, policy. It's almost setting the agenda mm. for how an urban environment or a precinct or a city will look. And so that really comes first and then the statutory, the legal side, then comes in and reflects all of that. So it, it's really complicated. And, you know, and each state has different legislation and it's a bit of a minefield. I, I, I find it quite interesting that a lot of people blame developers for <laughs> what happens, you know, say in the urban environment. And I think we need to take a step back because developers, you know, I am a property developer and, yes, there are some good ones and there are some bad ones. I think we need to take a step back and we need to look at... The framework. Yeah, yeah, we need to look at the politics that exists quite often and then we need to look at, say, local government. I don't think that local government goes far enough in terms of understanding and really comprehending the urban environment. And I'm actually... I'm sort of shocked sometimes and disappointed and I look at what gets approved and you just think, are you on drugs? Like can Mm. you not see, for example, you know, there might be a historic precinct and they'll approve something that will be like quite inappropriate. I can't even say modern because, you know, there's some amazing modern architecture and that's a really interesting juxtaposition. I just look at it and it's mediocre. Mm. You go, "Why, why are you doing that? And I think it's because they do that because of the fact that there's uh, probably really little understanding and what gets taught is a lot of the statutory controls. It's all about control. It's all about being reactive instead of being proactive. And I I couldn't agree with you more. And, look, I do think that people that work in local government are trying their best. But, you know, I mean, even where I live in our street, it's a conservation street. So there's all these beautiful Californian bungalows that we've preserved. But absolutely perpendicular at the end of the street, there's an actually the most hideous brick house I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) And again, I I go, look, I I totally understand what you're doing to our street. And it's beautiful. But then it's almost like putting this you know, dreadful pimple on the end of it. And I, and, I, and again, like you're saying, where is the logic in that? You know, where is the foreplanning around that? So, Linda, we've covered a little bit of Melbourne, but, of course, you've now moved up to the best state in Australia. <laughs> I say that as a Sydney-born and bred woman. And one of the biggest things that we had was the Sydney Olympics. Could you tell us there was another thing that you've been involved in? Could you describe to us that time and a little bit about what you were responsible for? Sure. So I I moved up to Sydney in 1994 
and I started working on the Olympics, on the master plan of the Olympics, pretty much the day after it was announced. There was an amazing, exciting vibrancy in Sydney. There was a whole thing about endless possibilities and I think it was the perfect place in the world to be at Mm. that time. Like I, I couldn't have thought of anywhere better. I was actually the director of the master plan for the Olympics. So I started that when I was 29. I was really lucky to have two fantastic mentors, a fellow called Brian Malloy, who'd been head of Leighton's, and he took a punt with me. And sometimes, you know, when you're in the right place at the right time. Well, preparation meets opportunity. Yeah, I think so. But I think one of the things with me is that, and it was quite different from a lot of others, is that I transcend the financial and the creative. So I've got the financial head and then the, you know, yeah, the 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 vision, the creative side. I was allowed to do something that nobody else had ever done. And before I started on the Sydney Olympics, I edited and published a journal on urbanism called Polis. And Polis, it took a multidisciplinary view of the city because previously architects had always dominated the urban debate and you'd have the occasional sort of planners or urban designers come in, but it was always architects. And again, I think having a fairly good understanding of urbanism, I mean, the the city and how it's designed is completely multidisciplinary. And one thing that a lot of people forget is it's actually about flows of capital and the flows of capital have actually already formed quite often what will happen in an environment anyway. Mm. So the architecture will be a component, it may be the end component, but it definitely is not the influencer, if you like. So we started and I did this, I co-edited with a very well-known Australian architect called Dale Jones-Evans and it was multidisciplinary and it looked at art, architecture, economics, urban design. We ended up getting some of the best urban thinkers in the world writing for it and it came out, if we produced it out of the Treasury Building in Melbourne, how I scammed an office in there, I did, and then we moved it up to the University of New South Wales. So it came out of the the architecture faculty. But interestingly enough, I used Polis as my basis, right, again, that whole multidisciplinary thing. And what I ended up doing with the Olympics When Sydney won the Olympics, there was no more than a land use plan. And interestingly enough, it was full of cul-de-sacs, right? And it was very basic. No real thought had gone into it. And I suggested that we actually had proper design studios that were multidisciplinary. So it wasn't about an architect designing the space, that we would invite the best urban thinkers, the best planners, the best architects, transport planners, economists, artists, everybody involved in producing an urban environment. And I wanted to showcase the best of Australian work. And what we did was we wrote an extensive brief for the Olympic site. There were a lot of environmental issues. And again, in a funny sort of way, the Olympics was only, you know, 16 days. It was about how this site was going to be used post the Olympics. Mm. So we invited about 60 people from around Australia. They were broken up into design studios. I ended up inviting, I think, probably the best architecture critic and urban critic in the world, Diane Sujic. He came out here, Jean Nouvelle, the French architect, and... Everybody would go away and work on these 
um, designs and then they would come back and then they'll be refined and then they'd go away. And that's how you do a proper master plan. Mm -hmm. You know, like good master plans are usually sort of in five-year increments. So it was setting the agenda. It was very controversial. Nobody had done that sort of thing before anywhere in the world. But I think a lot of things came out of that, you know, having architectural competitions. Now that's part of the sort of the landscape, if you like, that would happen in a lot of local government areas. And I think, you know, Sydney, City of Sydney and Graham Yarn and what he does, and funnily enough, Graham worked on it with me and he was one of the, the brief writers and he heads up development, the City of Sydney. And so considered very controversial. At the time, there were two architects two big firms that had, I think there would have been about 82 jobs that were being handed out. And, you know, the the establishment in Sydney didn't like what I was doing. I was given a very hard time. I think firstly because I was female, I still am female, but um, <laughs> female, uh, I was young and probably worst of all I was from Melbourne. But I can remember there was a a meeting at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. So there were a lot of jobs that were going to be given out mm. and there were these two firms that had it anyway. And I, I'm not going to mention his name because – but if if you work in the area that we work, in mm. the urban environment, you'll know who I'm talking about. Anyway, it's a big meeting. I felt like I was going to be lynched. But one of these characters who had – pretty much sort of stitched up the whole thing that he, his firm and another firm were going to get all the jobs, came up to me on the steps of the Art Gallery of New South Wales after the the meeting and said, I'm going to make sure you never work in this town again. Mm. And I've had that about three times and said to me over my working life and I sort of, interestingly enough, it always turns around, good things come out of that. So I sort of always think I'm on a winner when somebody tells me that. But interestingly enough, this particular person, and I have it framed in my office, but sent out a letter to every state government department saying I was a demented wog. Oh, nice. And that I should be taken off, you know, working on the Olympics. I mean, look, it was incredibly political, as Mm. you can imagine. You know, it was really the first time that Sydney had been on the international stage in a major way. Yeah, the demented wog continued on her way. So, you know, that gets back to your sort of initial question, like what was the what was the impact that it had growing up in mm. an area like that? You know, sort of you, you just have to learn to be nimble and flexible. I'm sure in the current environment and where we are now culturally, that sort of thing would not be tolerated. But it was faxed out, you know, <laughs> and I can remember being hauled into one of the government departments by the, you know, the secretary, as in the the head of the department, asking what I had done to this man. (laughs) So the Olympics was an exciting thing. Interestingly enough, I didn't go to the opening. I was at the opening ceremony. It was one of the best nights of my life. I I cried when the horses came out. I just don't ever think – I think what you say about that time was just a spectacular – from the moment that we won it and yeah. I know uh, John Faye just passed away recently and I always just thought he bought so much to that bid and he was I was just always crushed <laughs> when he didn't retain Premier of New South yeah. Wales because of it but I remember that was an amazing time and all of these things since I learned since then you know I remember living in Sydney at the time and all the buses were 
were amazing. All the drivers were amazing. And it wasn't until, you know, 15 years later, apparently what happened was someone rang up Lindsay Fox and asked him for all of his best truck drivers and they were the ones that were actually driving the buses in Sydney. And that sort of – there was just all of this euphoria but in the background all of these wheels were turning to make it such an amazing experience. What was your – looking back on that project – what was what are you most proud of in terms of maybe a space or a landscape? Oh, that's easy. Uh, for me, it was the almost having a lineal. You know, there's that major boulevard on the Olympic site, and that was giving the site some sort of procession about a grandness. And I actually took that from St Kilda Road in Melbourne, mm-hmm. and thinking about the grid form in New York. And then having all of the different uh, venues sort of off the boulevard. So there was a grandness about it. So I I would say to you that was probably the biggest legacy in terms of what the physical side, what's on the Olympics. But then I look now and I look at the way that people, you know, they've adopted design studios. Some people call them charrettes. They're not that at all. They're actually proper design studios and they're multidisciplinary. And I think whereas before it was about the the architect dominating, I don't think that happens now. It's about a whole series of design professionals coming together and collaborating and I see that more and more often, yeah. And just in that area, I mean, it's been an interesting journey for Olympic Park. Mm -hmm. You know, at at one point it was seen that it wasn't going to be continued to use but now we've seen a lot of development out there. What's your view on where it is at now? Well, interestingly enough, so I wasn't at the the Olympics. I decided to take myself off to Idra, one of the Greek islands, and I remember being in a little Suvlaki bar um, (laughs) watching the – and I was there by myself watching the opening, the Olympics. Uh, The Olympics were really intense. Mm. I think also along – you mentioned John Fay. There are a lot of other fantastic people you know, like, say, Glenn Marie Frost, uh, who was yep. recently, you know, on the front of the Sydney yes. Morning Herald, you know, did an incredible job. Kat Vitovic, a lot of quite amazing people. But the politics was – I actually worked on it for six years before, you know, we started in 1994 and before the Olympic Committee sort of even – we probably were there three years before. But to get back to your question, the legacy, I've been out there once – since I don't know if I can really comment to tell okay. you the truth. I, I don't think I'm qualified enough. Uh, I drive on the outskirts. I don't, from my point of view, I don't think it went as far as it could have gone. Mm. And for me, I'm particularly interested. I know this is going to sound weird, but this, some of the things that were really interesting were the toilets that were done and, you know, the smaller venues like the archery yes. and all that sort of yeah. stuff. I, thi- I think... You want to have an enduring quality with architecture and development and I I wonder, I'd question whether or not that actually exists there. Look, Mm. I I don't know. Mm. I've been to an ACDC concert there. That's my only experience and it was fantastic Mm. being in there with hordes of people but I've never really walked around. Yeah. Mm, Probably an odd thing. No. So you've finished the Olympics. Mm. You're in your Sivlaki bar. Yeah. By yourself. Yeah. And now you're thinking, what's Linda going to do next? Well, I actually had started doing it while I, was, while I was working on the Olympics. One of my big mantras is that good design adds value. 
and it does. It's really simple, and most people don't get it. I mm. don't understand why, but but there's a lot of bad design. Yeah, but you know, it's, I'm talking about good design. Doesn't need mm. to be more expensive. No, it needs to be clever, if you like, and it needs to be thought about. So, started buying warehouses in Surrey Hills and started developing them with. Dale Jones Evans, who was an architect, you know, he'd run the Robin Boyd Award and a lot of architectural awards. So, again, I thought to myself, well, this actually it makes a good team. So I was the developer component; he was the architectural component. We worked with a lot of artists. We we did all of those things that came out of Polis, you know, that came out of what they were doing with merchant builders. Mm. So I was taking that sort of ethos. And so I developed quite a lot of buildings, both commercial, residential. I think they set the agenda in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of them have won architectural awards and development awards, financed them. You know, I do everything pretty much from the, the planning, the marketing, the financing, I was always on site. I decided that I was going to do my own version of an apprenticeship. And so, you know, I was on site every day and learnt about building and construction. So I did that for about 20 years. And then, again, it was about wanting to demonstrate how good design adds value. And I thought, if nobody else is going to listen, I'm going to do it myself and I, and I think I sort of managed to – I mean, one example is a project I did in Ann Street in Surrey Hills and it was the first time, and I know this for certain, but it was the first time in Sydney that we had converted a, a building that had been a fabric dye factory and it was basically an off-form concrete building and we left all the uh, off-form concrete exposed and same with all the, the piers – so you had that sort of beautiful patina, even mm. though there was, you know, concrete cancer and all that sort of stuff. And we white set the walls and nobody did that sort of stuff. And we used to have architects and developers coming on a Saturday morning, you know, like trying to sort of peek through and see what we were doing. Because it really was, I mean, that was a renaissance of everyone doing that, not only just in Sydney, but, you know, in New York and places, everyone was turning these warehouses into something really, yeah. really special. Yeah. What? Was, what would you say would be the biggest misconception around a project like that you were doing? What was your biggest challenge in that, aside from obviously teaching yourself your own apprenticeship? It definitely wasn't getting money. I think, you know, at the end of the day when you're doing a project, when you're doing any development, it's really about your track record mm-hmm. and money's neutral. You can get it anywhere <laughs> and that that probably sounds odd but if you work in finance or you have an economics background you'll completely understand that. The biggest challenge I think was in a funny way working out the narrative and convincing people, whether it's the council, whether it's the neighbours, you know, your vision. And I wouldn't actually put any of these things on the market. They would be sold by me and it was word of mouth. You would only get access uh, to any of these projects if you knew me or you knew my circle. I can remember the first building we had in there, there was Tim Finn living there. There was Bill Granger from Bill's. There was Morris Tazzini, uh, the restaurateur. Mm. Jamie Jury came and did his first landscape job. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? It was yeah. sort of um, there was the landscape architect Tempe McGowan. There, it was like a sort of little hotbed of creativity. So, I, I think the narrative, in a funny sort of a way, mm. your 
projects have always tended, and it's no coincidence, to use some sort of brick. Yeah. And could you just explain a little bit why you're drawn to it? I think it goes back to, you know, that very early thing I was telling you earlier about merchant builders Mm. and also, you know, growing up in, you know, a Victorian house, the houses in our area were handmade Hawthorne bricks and there was a warmth to them. I'm always fascinated by bricks, you know, and brickworks in Melbourne were scattered throughout the suburbs. They weren't sort of isolated. No. So I have always liked bricks. I like I like the fact that there's been a resurgence of bricks, a reinvention in the last couple of years. I look at, say, for example, William Smart yeah. and, and the way that he uses bricks and I think it's, it's almost, it's like a nice renaissance. But funnily enough, I mean, just getting back to the whole, the childhood thing, like my all-time favourite house was a house designed in 1972 by Guildford Bell and it's in North Road in Brighton and it had a lodger. It was made of travertine, concrete um, and steel and it still looks as good. There wasn't a brick in sight and then next door is a big old arts and craft house and it was red brick and I can always remember seeing and thinking about the juxtaposition between the white, the travertine and the concrete and then you've got this sort of red brick and I always like that sort of thing. Mm, we say it goes well with a lot of materials. Yeah, it does, it does. Linda, I, I do want to touch on Jabiru mm. and because one of the other things that you've done is explain a lot of Aboriginal art, mm. not only to myself but to mm. some networks that I'm involved in. Could you just explore a little bit about this obvious passion for Aboriginal art mm. and then how that's infused your professional career as yep. well? It, it actually started when I was probably 17, 18. I was given a, a painting by my father. It was an Aboriginal work and it was, again, that whole thing about what it meant to be Australian. Constantly thought about it. And, you know, when I was um, talking about almost being in no man's land mm. and he very cryptically said, you go and find out about this and that's what I was left with. So a I painting said, and a mission. Yeah. So when, when it was time, I did that. And I also come from a, a family that are very well-known, pastoral family and in Western Australia and the Western District of Victoria. And it's in particular in Western Australia, you know, these stations had probably 60 people on each one. They were big, you know, they're over a million acres each one and without, you know, the Aboriginal people working on the stations. And this was always acknowledged by my grandparents, great-grandparents, my great-great-grandfather. You know, they were completely integral to the way that these businesses functioned. We were one of the first stations not to kick off Aboriginal people after the 1967 referendum. So when you go out to places like... Turkey Creek, Kununurra, Halls Creek, a lot of those places in Western Australia, especially sort of around the Kimberley, they actually were established post the referendum because a lot of Aboriginal people were kicked off pastoral stations because the white pastoralists weren't prepared to pay equal wage. And you've got to remember beforehand a lot of Aboriginal people were paid in flour, sugar, tobacco. I mean, it was like indentured slavery, basically. So anyway, I 
spent, and I have for many, many years, a lot of time in different communities, quite often sort of three or four months at a time. And I used to do that when I was waiting for development approval. You know, council would take months, so I would nick off, go up north or, you know, into central desert. And I started collecting. I was very conscious of wanting to collect like a snapshot of work sort of from the early 90s up until the sort of 2000. And I concentrated on sort of four distinct spaces or places, I should say, in Aboriginal communities. But I don't, I don't think that many Australians realise that Australia is divided up into many, many different countries and many different languages as well and customs and uh, it's not all homogenised. And I give the example, if you can imagine moving through Western Europe and you start sort of, say, Spain, Portugal and as you move along east, you know, the language is different, the Mm. country is different. That's what Australia is like. Um, It's You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. My daughter, who is nine, brought me home that map. Yeah. which actually showed all the Aboriginal countries in it mm. and it was the first time I'd even seen it. So it's – well, exactly. It's sort of – so not many people know about that. I think I'm always – and I have to say to you, I am astounded and this is a lot of my friends too that are quite happy to jump on aeroplanes and I hear them now, you know, oh, I can't wait to go to Europe, I can't wait to go here. It's like they have not been in their own backyard and I can remember working, this is with ATSIC, which was the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission, doesn't exist now, but we were trying to establish a museum at Turkey Creek or Warman um, in the Kimberley for a, if you like, an art gallery museum for Rover Thomas, who is one of the best painters that Australia has ever produced. And it was about celebrating what is in our own backyard mm. Uh, And I think there's sort of a nice irony now, if you like, that, you know, we had the fires and now that there's COVID and I thought, well, that's fantastic. Now people are forced Mm. to actually discover their own country. And there's a film that's just been released called Higher Ground and I recently put something on my Instagram about it because it was written by Chris Anastasiadis and, you know, it's a Simon Baker-produced film. It was the, you know, group that did Yongu Boy. Mm. There are shots of East Arnhem Land that have never been shown before on film and it will blow your mind. Well, I it's think I... It's a I'd... brutal film yeah. and everybody needs to see it because it's actually about part of the truth-telling but... I would urge everybody to go and see it. I think I was saying to you, although I'm late to the party on Mystery Road, but yeah. that that one is <laughs> blowing me away at the moment and, and not only just the acting but I think... It's because of Aaron Peterson, isn't it? Oh, everyone <laughs> says that. But no, I just no. think the on, the ensemble is, yes. is very, very good yeah. and I think the character itself is the outback and yeah. just seeing the beauty of it and the stark yeah. contrast to that and then what's going on. Yeah. So mm. I would always use Broom as my base mm. and then, you know, yeah, would go out for sort of weeks, months on end collecting work and establishing really good relationships uh, with the different community members and all that sort of stuff. And it's almost in a strange way where I'm happiest, you know, being by the sea and I love that interface and you know with the pindan dirt Mm. the red dirt and then the aquamarine of the sea you know the blue blueness and so recently I worked on a project which was doing the 
sort of placemaking of Jabiru. Mm. And Jabiru is about to be uh, given back to the traditional owners. As maybe some of your listeners may know that it was a uranium mine and it still is and it's being rehabilitated. So it's about – and it's it's in a World Heritage listed site. And a lot of the Aboriginal people in that area have always seen that as sick country because of the uranium. Mm. So the township that was established when Jabiru became a, a mining town is being given back to the traditional owners and we've been working on looking at ways of how to turn it into a sustainable tourist but a very environmentally conscious town that marries almost the two-way, yes. if you like, the Aboriginal cultural and the benefits that come from that and then same with the white. And that's also the interesting thing about, I think, when I just mentioned before, higher ground, that that was very much about a two-way interaction. So, again, it's about collaboration and mm. I think the collaborative component of the the Aboriginal cultural element and then the white way of doing things as well and, and being able to marry the two, I think that's probably where... In a funny way, you get the best results. So, yeah, but I, I worked on that. Very, very fascinating. And I guess just for just my curiosity, what, again, what are some of the biggest stumbling blocks that we fail to understand as in, as in white Australians about Aboriginal sense of place? That, that's, that's a big question and a hard one. Sense of place is really important. I, I don't think I'm going to answer that okay. because I can't answer uh, for Aboriginal people, but I can definitely talk about sense of place. Yeah. And I think as Australians we need to celebrate our sense of place and the architecture that we produce and almost the architecture being reflective of the landscape, of the place that we are in. Mm. And I was recently interviewed for, and I think a fantastic initiative, Galar, uh, which is one of a, my favourites. Yeah, mm. so Galar's a new magazine that has just come out, and again, very interesting because it's counterintuitive. You know, all the other big publishing houses are closing down their publications. Galar has started up, and it's and it's celebrating rural and regional Australia. And I talk about sense of place, and I say, why do you want a Hamptons house mm. in Australia, or in the Australian suburbs, or in a regional place when you're not? in the Hamptons or a Balinese thing or a, you know, some sort of English formal or French garden. Have a look at what you have around you. And I think once we understand a sense of place and it's that whole thing of of the place, of genus loci, I think we will actually start producing better buildings, better environments for people to enjoy. And you talk about your sense of place being not only inner city but also at Windsor. Yeah. Can you describe a little bit the aspects of probably more Windsor that you... Windsor's quite a funny little story. I had a really fantastic assistant and as a going away present, I decided to give her a day with a dog whisperer because she was obsessed with dogs but she didn't have a dog. Anyway, this particular dog whisperer is Brazilian. He's in Londonderry, <laughs> so in the, the north. An actual person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And he's he's brilliant. And again, I think it's that whole thing of, you know, EQ. So I took Lucy there to spend the whole day with the dog whisperer and the animals and I said to her, let's go and have a look at Windsor. I've never been there. And part of what I was doing at the National Trust, and we haven't really talked about that, but uh, I was 
heading up retail and the whole adaptive reuse, but ended up getting the National Trust to change their magazine. And and that's how I got to know Victoria Kerry. So mm. we bought in Victoria from Country Style, loved her aesthetic. Also, Victoria was, you know, Australian Editor of the Year and I wanted her to reinvent the magazine. So she did a really interesting article on Windsor. And I thought, wow, this this place is interesting. It's really part of Australia's early colonial history. And so I said to Lucy, let's go and have a look. So we drove around Windsor full of, you know, its little Georgian buildings and all the rest of it. And I've got a bit of a knack. And I suppose it's something that's been honed since I was a kid. I can always find the best bits of real estate. Anyway, so we drove around and found this bit called the Peninsula and it was a whole pocket of that had once been a farm that had been subdivided into smaller farms and in this area was Australia's first courthouse designed by Francis Greenaway Mm. and then Australia's first observatory uh, that Tebbit, who was on the $100 note, lived Mm. and his family still lived there. Anyway, Found this place, went home, had a look online. I found this great house. So I put an offer in it straight away. I love the fact that it was on the Hawkesbury. It wasn't barrel or, you know, that's like sort of Willara revisited. And it's something that's sort of low-key and quiet and it's beautiful. And the whole place is surrounded by heritage-listed barns. I think there's about 100 of them, Mm -hmm. 110 a lot of them date back from the early 1800s and they're they're very distinctive and they're made out of hardwood. Sorry, they're not made out of brick. <laughs> That's all right. I, one of the things I like most about your Windsor house is its brick floor. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Um, Was that there originally or did no, you, you? No, I put in? it in. <laughs> I put it in because the, the house next door to me is handmade convict brick and part of it is starting to disintegrate you know, it's it's part of the natural process, but it's really interesting to see what's behind the actual brick. Mm. Yeah, so that's the the whole little story with with Windsor. Mm. So I worked with Macquarie Bank, and I had a really fantastic position, which was looking at how to add value to their real estate portfolio, both in Australia and overseas. So it was about conceptual stuff, and worked with some really really smart people. And at one level just loved it and I had the best interview I think I've ever had in my life with Alan Moss who ran no it was Bill Moss actually who ran Macquarie and I think it lasted five minutes and he said can you think and I said yes and he said good we need to think we need to have people that can think strategically and laterally we've got too many accountants too many bankers you've got the job and that was literally my job interview not a bad which one. I thought was pretty good <laughs> But I used to go overseas a lot with Macquarie and while I was, you know, like whatever sort of European city I was in or Asian city, I used to look at in particular ironing boards would be strewn in the street and it was almost like something that was a theme that kept coming. I used to see used ironing boards and I started thinking about the fact that I still had my great-grandmother's washing basket, you know, beautiful cane washing basket. And I've always liked things that have enduring quality to them, that you buy one good thing rather than ten pieces of crap. Mm. And the whole thing about the ironing board started to get me thinking and I thought, well, this is a piece of, you know, sort of domestic 
you know, it's something that's used by most people every day. And where do they go? It gets goes to landfill, it's left on the street. Why don't we have anything that we can buy? And this was really before internet or sort of retail shopping on online. So I started off a, a shop. I left the bank and started off a retail business called Pure in General. And it was basically goods that had been produced by not just artisans, but things that had enduring quality to them. And, you know, I imported them. There were also a lot of things that Australian made, but it was that whole idea you buy one good thing. It ended up being named Best Retail mm. in Australia by Louis Vuitton and also by Qantas. And it was the way that we merchandised and it was the way that I think it was quite magical. And I look, it's one of my biggest indulgences is to scroll through your Instagram, which is also known as Pure in General. And I also think it it really captures the eclectic nature of your experience and also your passions. I think you're right, actually. It's very much about an aesthetic. There's an aesthetic thing, but there's also a, you know, it's got to function Mm. properly. And then, again, it's all part of that whole thing of one of the reasons why I ended up doing Pure in general is because when we uh, did a lot of our property developments, people would always like the interiors. And usually, you know, an interior company would come in. We used to do everything. And I did several projects with Michael Grant from Cornerstone and there were five of us that would do absolutely everything. And I used to love Michael's um, sort of obsessive eye, I've probably got the same sort of thing. But a lot of people would always ask me, you know, where we found particular furniture mm. or rugs or carpets or whatever it was. So that was sort of one of the reasons why we did it. It ended up going for about seven years. I opened another one in inner west of Sydney, much smaller one as well. But I think it changed, you know, the way that people viewed retail. So, you know, that was started in 2010 about sustainability, or, you know, 11 years ago, mm. and that whole notion of buying well, if you like. Yeah, so – and then sort of as part of that, what I'm doing now is I'm working with Beckon Capital, and Beckon Capital is quite interesting. I'm working with a fellow called Chris Self, whom I've known for about 20 years, and Chris, ex-investment banker from Bankers Trust – a great character yeah absolute character and so it's a combination of bankers ex-bt and ex-goldman sachs and it's about impact investing uh from my point of view it's something that we've been doing for 35 years and we're you know we're investing in small to medium enterprises or businesses that have some sort of benefit if you like and so we're also doing the you know, I'm heading up the whole property side and we've, we've got quite stringent, I suppose, principles that we have to adhere to and that anything that we do has to have an environmental benefit to it or a sustainable benefit. It has to have a cultural benefit. It's got to have a social. It has to have design excellence mm. and it has to make money. And so we won't look at anything from a development point of view that is anything less than, say, 20% profit on cost. So we're doing our own projects and then we're also looking at, you know, supporting smaller developers uh, and probably, you know, projects from between about 10 million up to 110 million. So not really big and then big enough that is not that sort of mum and dad thing. I always look at, 
You know, it makes me laugh in Australia because I think every Australian thinks they're a property developer because <laughs> they renovate their house. And it gets back to that whole thing I was talking about earlier of you need to serve an apprenticeship because it's really complicated. Mm. You've got to know what you're doing. And I think in a funny way, and this is being really cynical, but it amuses me that I think Australians are really good at two things. If you deconstruct stuff, I think we're good at pulling stuff out of the ground. I think we're good at subdividing land. <laughs> right? And uh, do you know what I mean? Interestingly enough, you know, through COVID, there's been a property boom. Mm. Again, sort of counterintuitive. So, yeah, we're, we're looking at small businesses, any architectural firms or any, any business that wants to grow, we invest in and do, you know, these sort of developments as well. Linda, I think today we haven't even scratched half the surface <laughs> of what we could have, but it's been a fascinating discussion and you've contributed so much to urbanism, but also I think there's this beautiful creativity and softness that you bring to it as well. And I really appreciate learning about all the history that you've been experiencing on your journey. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate being invited and sitting down and chatting with you. It's been delightful. Thank you. Now, we've got a little bit of a quick fire round that we do ask everyone, so I'll try not to interject. Um, reading the news, newspaper or online? Both. Handwriting or typing? Both. Do you like to read books or listen to audio? Read books. Sorry, even though I'm doing an audio. I'm the same. I, I, I love listening to podcasts, but I have to read books. Yeah. What's important to you, style or substance? Both. Coffee or tea? I've never drunk coffee in my life and I've never been drunk in my life because I've never had alcohol. It's pathetic. But anyway, it tea. TV shows or movies? Both. Call or text? I'm really fussy about that. You've got to call. Yep. I actually think it's about etiquette and texting is because you don't actually want to speak to me. Yes. And uh, texting is because you're lazy. <laughs> so it's got to be calling. Antique or brand new? Both. Combination. Travel back in time or into the future? Happy where I am now. <laughs> I think you're the only second person who said that. They didn't want to do either. Exterior or interior? Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, There's the public and the private there, isn't there? So off the top of my head, I'd say both, but that's sort of a cop-out. For public buildings, exterior. For domestic, interior. I love the qualification. Yeah. <laughs> Video games or board games? None. No games? No. Form or function? Both. Complex or simple with relation to design? Oh, that's an interesting question too. I think things have to be simple. Linda, thank you very much. Thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> Delight. <laughs> if you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.